Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKenty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the Members Forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKenty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, whenever and wherever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on November 4th, 2020. Today on the program, I'm bringing together two powerhouses of science to take a deep dive into the viral theory and get to the bottom of this long-standing debate between the germ and terrain theories of disease causation. Doctors Judy Mikovits and Stephanie Seneff are back in this episode to discuss emerging scientific research that viruses actually play an important and symbiotic role inside the human body. Working side by side with the immune system to detoxify the body, heal cellular mitochondria, and even upgrade our DNA so as to make us better able to detoxify ourselves in the future. While many of us have been taught that invading viruses cause disease, This 150-year-old theory, first popularized by Louis Pasteur, is in need of a rigorous reanalysis in the face of recent scientific advancements. Many of us do not realize that this martial metaphor of viral invasion as the cause of disease has been upended by the discovery of the virome by Dr. Stephen Lanka in the 1980s. Prior to his research, it was assumed by scientists that viruses were simply disease-causing agents. But in, in the aftermath of Lanka's discovery, It is now known that every healthy living organism contains billions upon billions of viruses all the time. There are currently thousands of peer-reviewed studies attempting to understand this virome and its function within the body. Though the debate rages on, one thing is clear. Viruses are not just germs that cause disease, but rather are part of a larger holistic system of disease control that is not yet fully understood. Doctors Mikovits and Seneff come together on this program to help demystify the current research while discussing their own theories as to the purpose and function of this recently discovered internal system, utilizing what was once believed to be the root cause of disease. Dr. Mikovits is the co-author of Plague and Plague of Corruption. She has PhDs in biochemistry and molecular biology and has 30 years experience working in the fields of immunology, natural products chemistry, epigenetics, and HIV-AIDS drug development. She was also the lead researcher on the team that isolated the XMRV virus in 2009. Find out more about Dr. Mikovits and her work at www.plaguethebook.com. Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT, where she has studied and worked for over 50 years. She has PhDs in electrical engineering and computer science and worked for decades on human-machine interfaces, which eventually became commonplace tools such as Alexa and Siri. For the past 15 years, she's turned her interests onto the field of molecular biology in the hopes of helping discover the root cause of autism. Her work ultimately focused on the ubiquitous toxin glyphosate, and its potentially disastrous effects on the human body. 
Find out more about Dr. Seneff at stephaniesaneff.net. As always, you can find out more about The Shift at The Shift with Doug McKinty on YouTube, Facebook, and many other social media platforms. I'm also on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this episode as we rely on listeners like you to distribute this information. Thank you all for listening to this conversation between myself and Drs. Judy Mikovits and Stephanie Seneff, and thank you for helping to make the shift. And hello, everyone. Welcome to this. This is the 49th episode of The Shift. Today, I am joined by Judy Mikovits, Dr. Judy Mikovits, as well as Dr. Stephanie Seneff. I've spoken with them both separately on this program, uh, and I'll link to those down below. We are getting, uh, we get so deep into the science, and I'm so fascinated about it. I'm trying to learn enough about this myself that I can actually start to follow what these ladies are talking about, and I think I'm getting an idea but um, I hope I can keep talking to them until we can really um, distill this information down into a format that everybody can, can really understand. Because, I mean, I think what happened to me was, you know, six months ago, Dr. Andy Kaufman starts talking on, I'm hearing about it on the internet, and he's just saying, let's throw away the viral theory. Let's just start talking about terrain theory. Viral theory has never been proven. And I'm like, wait a minute, okay, you know, this is a pretty bold statement. So little did I know I was going to go down this entire rabbit hole for the next six months of starting to understand some of the more com complicated science behind the human virome and how it works and how it all relates with what we're dealing with with COVID right now. Uh, and then even as Dr. Stephanie Seneff will show us how it all uh, is interacting with toxins, especially glyphosate inside of our body right now. So um, we can get this bigger picture about what's going on with our health in general, but um, with COVID specifically. So I wanted to start it off today with a, a little bit of a recap. I think Dr. Seneff and I, went in our interview, we, we kind of went through this viral theory pretty thoroughly. But in preparing for this, uh, Dr. Mikovits sent uh, some papers our way. Uh, and one of them really went into detail about how the viruses are so fascinating. And the human virum wasn't really even discovered until the 1980s. And now we've had 40 years of science about what it is and how it works and what's what's going on. And yet the layman's interpretation is still back in the in the past year days where we think that viruses just invade our bodies and make us sick. And that's what they do. But science has a completely new picture, especially in the last 20 years. I was noticing in all the references, it's just phenomenal the amount of work that's been done. So uh, let's get started here maybe with Dr. Mikovits. Do you want to discuss how, how the virome works and what's really going on here? Because it's so fascinating that we get, we get um, genetic information from outside the body. It gets into our body and our body uses this, recodes this information, and it's actually an upgrade and a, a participating an important factor in human evolution. It's just crazy. Um, you want to talk about how science has been discovering this? I mean, it's very clear now. There's been hundreds of papers about this. It's, it's, a, it's a totally different theory, and very few people, I think, understand it outside of scientific circles. Yeah, and I think, I think the best way to talk about it, I, I won't even pretend to understand it. You know, I've been looking at the papers I sent you for the better part of a year, right. and every time I learn something new. So I think the better way to say it, it's, it's an evolution of, of our understanding. And, and yes, um, you know, Dr. Andy Kaufman, and this is where I, I think this is where um, 
trying to simplify this, we, we get in trouble. Because so Dr. Andy Kaufman, almost everything he says is right, except throw away the viral theory. It's never been proven mm -hmm. because, you know, it has been proven, but we're not talking about the same thing. And really, um, the and in, in, in acute diseases, it has been proven. And, and for and, and in fact, with 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 in my history, with the retroviruses, HTLV-1, HIV, um, HGRV, human gamma retrovirus, and human beta retrovirus, um, in all of those cases, um, these viruses have been proven to be associated with disease, um, uh, a chronic disease, not, not necessarily acute disease. Um, but it's the word is association and not cause. So yes, there are viruses that bud out of cells. Um, um, and, and yes, when you show those, the Koch postulates, when you show those, when you isolate those, and again, some will say you've never isolated them because there's cellular material in there. Well, that's what an envelope virus is. The viral blueprint, either their RNA or their DNA, or and, and this is really critical to the discussion in COVID. So the RNA, the DNA, whatever kind of virus, um, whatever their blueprint is, ours is a double-stranded DNA genome, as we know, in the nucleus of our cells. Um, but their blueprint uses is essentially all of the host machinery. So whether you're a monkey with retro, you know, all animals, even plants have retroviruses that, that are important in their evolution and important in their function. But their expression is really tightly controlled. And this was um, some of our work back, you know, 20 years ago with the, the brilliant uh, Dr. Stephen B. Balin. Um, this was my foray into epigenetics all the way back in, uh, it was probably 1990. And, and DNA methylation and the whole methylation machinery was 10 people in a room at a Gordon conference. And one day, uh, Dr. Balin emailed Dr. Rossetti and I was his technician. And he said, would you like to present on what, you know, what um, HIV, um, it, what DNA methylation does to silence HIV? And that was all rather boring for me, but, and, and he, and he invited Dr. Rossetti because I didn't have a PhD yet. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, if you were just a technician, you don't, you don't get to speak. So I was answering and I used the correct grammar when I said, I, I can answer on behalf of Dr. Rossetti that, that um, to accept that invitation. I didn't say I'd accept it. He came back and said, you stole my meeting <laughs> and no matter, it was my theory anyway. Uh, so <laughs> at any rate, um, so what, what, what I, I did I thought it was all very boring because we appreciated when you have CPGs um, across the genome um, and this was the work what again another brilliant um, and I'm talking about the evolution I'm getting to the question um, Dr. Barbara McClintock and 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 her work and other in in um, in, in DNA methylation and the regulation of gene expression so what can, we're talking about is the regulation Excuse me. Let me just ask you what, about what is DNA methylation exactly? 
Um, basically, when you have a cytosine, five prime of a guanine, um, that and, and that that's important. And you know, our our DNA is made up of base pairs A, C, T, and G. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have C sitting to the left of G, as you're reading, as the machine, the you know, your cellular machine, as you're transcribing the DNA and and tra- into message, and you're translating it into protein, if the C is five prime to the G. A methyl group is been is being put on it by the methyl donor, the only one in our diet, um, methionine, um, and so amino acid methionine. There's a methyl group on that. It's it's put on that by the by a family of enzymes called uh, DNA methyltransferases. They transfer a methyl group when it's needed, and so every time um, your you we see that in our human genomes, C five prime of G. It's methylated in order to silence the gene so it's only expressed in the right tissue in the right time. And so um, a huge part of our, um, of our genome is what we call um, uh, CPG islands. So that CPG, CPG, and it's thousands of base pairs so when and it all gets methylated so it's silenced because you know in our nucleus all the dna i mean it's miles and miles of dna is in the nucleus of the cell well how do you compact that with methylation and it's never ever expressed it's literally a stop sign and a start sign on the expression of genes got it that virome especially the the um retroviral virome the retroviruses have lots of CPGs in their promoter. And in their what, is, what is a CPG? Excuse me. That's from cytosine five prime of guanine, guanosine. Okay. It, in the DNA, it's the cytidine, whatever. It's five prime. So, you know, so we have enzymes to take off um, in the methyl group. And when the methyl group is gone, it expresses. That's your signal. That's the whole, how do you tell which DNA we have? Like I'm, you know, I'm sitting here, my eyes are bothering me today. Um, probably cause I was sobbing. No, <laughs> all right. that. <laughs> so, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. right. Just a long day. Um, at any rate, um, um, uh, and, and, um, in, uh, when, how do you express the genes for blue eyes, brown eyes in your eyes. How does your body know? Well, that methyl group is is the primary signal and the the last stop sign on the way to gene expression. Mm -hmm. There's protein methylation and other kinds of methylation um, that we all know about that's really key. Um, And it's this methylation machinery when, when, you know, the CPG, those islands, that's our silence virome. And, and, and when we deplete, and, and so in nature, bacteria, viruses, particularly retroviruses and other pathogens in nature have what we call naked CPGs. They're never methylated. And it's a danger signal because it's a danger signal. It, you've, so, and, and so the, the, the vaccine adjuvant that was recently approved um, it, what is, is literally just a piece of CPG. All the LPS, all the lipopolysaccharide. This is horrible because it's creating, it literally takes the methyl groups off because your body's trying to catch up and silence these things because when they're expressed, they cause this damage 
And this is what COVID-19 is. They destroy the mitochondria, they destroy the energy. You must use this methylation machinery and the other machinery in nutrients in, in the environment to keep genes expressed and, and silent depending on the needs, the metabolic needs of the host cell. And often that's regulated by divalent cations, magnesium, zinc, um, um, calcium, and, and other things. They're very important in regulating virus expression and virus viral latency. And this was the whole topic of my PhD thesis. And the recognition of how to use these things is, is really um, not just methylation, but the innate immune signaling. And, the, um, and, um, and this is, they, they now call them toll receptors. So TLR9 is the one that naked CPGs, and this just turns on inflammatory uh -huh. pathways that are intended to clear the viruses. So it's not the presence of the virus, it's the expression of the virus. And when everything gets expressed at once because we've crippled with environmental toxins, um, meaning lack of minerals, the soil, uh, and, and glyphosate, um, and uh, a GMO, which are, you know, those are methylatable sequences. And when we inject such a heavy amount of CPG content, inject directly into the blood, not the way a virus is recognized, then you get, you know, literally total dysregulation and the dormant microbes of all kinds wake up. So yes, the terrain theory matters, as Andy Kaufman says. Um, but in, and that is the terrain is that inflammatory response, that flame, and at the heart of chronic disease is inflammatory response. But it, and and the germ theory it, to say it's never been proven, you know, um, it's rarely been proven, and 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 when it has, um, they're usually acute pathogens, and and in the case of um, even HIV as it existed, um, HTLV uh, uh, one by understanding the molecular mechanisms, and and in fact, HTLV uh, one is causative for a very aggressive. This is human T-cell leukemia virus with the first human disease-causing exogenous retrovirus isolated and associated with disease by my longtime mentor, Dr. Frank Rossetti and Bernie Poise, all the way back in the 70s, but while I was still in high school or college. Um, at any rate, um, that it was a causative virus at that time, and it's interesting, for adult T-cell leukemia, an extremely aggressive leukemia. Um, people would die very quickly. But what was interesting about HTLV-1 and the leukemia is the, um, is the cancer cells didn't have any evidence of the virus. Mm -hmm. the, 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 but the human being made an immune response and had evidence of virus, usually in the innate immune cells. That's your frontline defense. And so in those innate immune cells that literally drive the macrophages, the type one, and I sent the PowerPoint, I'm happy to um, share slides and pictures help your audience, but this is, this is what I've been putting together and I always change it to tweak because I learn every time. But it's those innate immune cells, the macrophage, the monocyte macrophage at the blood level, there's a stem cell in the hematopoietic, that means blood stem, cell macrophage. But every 
every single part of the body from the brain to the eye, to the lung, to the liver have resident stem cell macrophages. They're stem cells. They stay there for the life of the, and, and, and we, we didn't know that. We thought all the stem cells came from the bone marrow, but these evolve in embryology two weeks before the bone marrow macrophage. So this guy is the conductor of the orchestra. So when a virus or a pathogen, for instance, let's let's do HPV, yep. it affects um, human papillomavirus, a DNA virus. It affects, infects uh, just a single layer of cells under the keratinocytes and the macrophages in the keratinocytes clear it 99% of the time such that there's never an infection established. And so, but what the vaccine does with HPV is injects, you know, a piece or a part of the virus or even a weakened virus directly into the bloodstream, bypassing the Mm. innate immune response that in 99.9% of the people clear the virus. Mm. And so what, when in, 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 in HIV or in HTLV1, what is recognized now, that was a fatal leukemia. 20 years ago, and, and, and um, a fatal leukemia. And what we realized is if we could keep the methylation machinery healthy and silence it, and we use drugs like 5-A's-deoxycytidine, five five it's, a, it's a drug that, um, that we worked with Steve from that very first day, Dr. Um, Stephen Balin, when he called me, um, and, and I got that talk. How, how I turned it around is how does the virus How does the virus manipulate the methylation machinery to allow itself to persist? And it changes everything. And it changed everything about now, um, you know, now you see huge sessions of epigenetics and and using those therapeutically. That drug was called Decetabine. I, I don't know what the company changed the name to, but that drug is used now as a part of a curative strategy, not one drug, but a curative strategy to cure um, adult T-cell leukemia because it was recognized it was at the level of the innate immune response, that terrain, that that initial flame that we have to turn off. And it's the same pathways as SARS-CoV-2, SARS-1, MERS, HIV, uh, HTLV-1, and we've never cured those by directly killing the virus. Most antiviral drugs, antiretroviral drugs, antiviral drugs are not viral cytal. You meaning you don't take them, put them in the virus in a test tube and kill the virus. You enhance the immune response. You change the immune response. And in, in the case of hydroxychloroquine and um, um, in the case of hydroxychloroquine and zinc, you simply open a channel and allow the cells to shoot the bullets. And, and um, because it's it's not, the, the cell won't shoot, it won't trigger. It's what is called anergic. And, and we can talk about the, the paper that Stephanie sent about the mitochondria, senescence. So senescence is when we're old and we've taken so many hits to, to the cell machinery that you're just tired and you couldn't respond 
if you wanted to. And we see that very clearly today, meaning you just have no bullets to shoot. You know, the thing comes in and it's like, nah, and there's no antibodies made. We have an entire disease called common variable immune deficiency. And it's at the, and we don't make certain subclasses of antibodies for certain subclasses uh, of pathogens. And, and the, 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 the communication for that is between the dendritic cell and the B cell at a, at a primary level. So, so we've appreciated that this is what I'm saying with, with Dr. Kaufman's statements over since, you know, a hundred years ago, we, we firmly appreciate that. Um, yes. Um, the terrain theory, um, is far more important, um, than, than any kind of genetics or any kind of germ theory. But we, we switched our, our entire study um, for the last 50 years to which your genetics is causing the disease. And no, it's the aberrant expression of your genes. That's your epigenetics. And your genes have to include that virome, those millions of viruses, uh, retroviruses and other that over generations have been silenced by different mechanisms um, and many different mechanisms. The patterns are all redundant because, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. And we really protect our DNA in that nucleus with antioxidants. You know, we have superoxide dismutase and catalase in the nucleus that's scanning all the time. And in the, in the, in the cytosol of the cell, we have principally glutathione. And so what does glyphosate destroy? So the, the SARS-CoV-2 viruses, that, that family of RNA viruses is, is in the cytosol. They're not nuclear viruses. They don't integrate into our DNA. You know, long haul COVID is dysregulation of the retroviruses and primarily, um, you know, with the XMRVs, but the M can stand for mouse and monkey. And that would include HIV. That would include the mouse virus, retroviruses the bird retroviruses, all animals that are, and even the endogenous viruses in the aborted fetal tissue, because you're injecting the blueprint. You're injecting the, the blueprint for a virus into the cell. And when the immune system and when the cell replicates, it, especially in the retroviruses, it, may, it writes the provirus, whether it be a piece or a part. Mm -hmm. And the expression of that provirus um, is a problem. And this is what we see um, in, in all of the diseases really of the 21st century associated. Um, and they're associated with infection, but they're never said to be associated with vaccines. And in fact, a vaccine by definition is to mimic an infection to your immune system, to your endocannabinoid system, to your purinergic, or this is, this is, um, uh, purines and pyrimidines, what make up your nucleic acids, the building blocks of your DNA. As we build healthy new cells, and every day you turn over 10 to the ninth red blood cells or, and white blood cells, that's an awful lot of opportunity for mutation to exist, for viruses to be replicated in those immune cells. And that's why the, the primary infection um, is those cells. And, and if you can protect the rest of your tissues, then you don't end up with sepsis and all the mitochondrial um, dysfunction that we're seeing. Um, and, and that's the big why. Right. So the virus do absolutely doesn't cause the disease. And that's where Andy Kaufman and 
is exactly right. It's not the germ, it's the terrain. But what's lost is we're injecting the germs and we have for decades. So now when we use the measures that we're using in COVID-19, which is the mask and, and, um, and the flu shots to drive the aberrant expression and the dysregulation um, and, um, uh, and it's driving the disease. And so COVID-19, um, the disease is not caused by the virus. And Andy's exactly right there. So, but, and Koch's postulates, not one of them have been satisfied. Right. Um, essentially all of them were satisfied with the XMRVs when we learned. And I say the last one that almost no, nobody can satisfy is you have to purify the agent away from other m- microbes and then inject or expose another human being, they get infected and they get the disease. Well, the big, oh my God, in 2011, when they shut me down, um, uh, they thought forever, um, was the 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 fifth the fifth um uh postulate of Koch's postulates was satisfied in XMRV when it was realized in 2011 um that the blood supply was heavily contaminated and we were transmitting it and this was the problem in HIV as well it was transmitted through a contaminated blood supply and again when you're infusing the blood and you've infused the blueprint of the virus the virus. You don't need to be have an infectious virus. So in 2011, um, what was realized um, uh, primarily by a, a group led by Adi Gazdar um, and, and others was that we, we and it, it was shown in our, in our paper, in our science paper in 2009, but we didn't appreciate it. But it was actually contagious cancer contagious retroviruses. So mm-hmm. those of us sitting in front of the hood or isolating the virus or, or, or handling the blood or handling anything, we got infected. We seroconverted. We made an antibody. Um, and that means, and and I proved, and our team proved, we isolated it from many different patients and different people around the world I, um, also did such isolations. And this was done in HIV. This is where Andy um, Kaufman is wrong. It is proven, the germ theory, in the case of HIV, but the problem is not to the extent the government lied to us, because a lot of it was injected and not infectious and transmissible. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the XMRVs, um, um, which which had been worked with, I would say, in the lab, um, in the contaminating the cell lines, um, the cell lines, um, like the like the um, uh, Vero monkey kidney cells, where the bat tissue was mixed. Those are contaminated with retrovirus, all kinds of viruses, including the XMRVs and including the synthetic lab variants. So when you can, in when when you're inhaling. You know, literally we were inhaling and getting the particles on us and I zero converted very early on. And we know that HIV wasn't transmitted through the air, through aerosolization, um, because um, I was tested for 22 years um, every three months and I never made an antibody. I never zero converted. And so in 2010, I quickly zero converted and had a 
boatload of XMRV proteins in me. So how do I keep from developing the associated lung cancers um, or or because uh, the, the, I'll, I'll get lung cancer because um, this family of viruses is associated with lung cancers and I already have a predisposed dysfunction in my lungs that allows the virus to continue to replicate and hurt me. And this is why I can't wear a mask and neither can any cancer patient. So <laughs> I know that didn't come close to answering your question. <laughs> well, I, let's, uh, I just want to, I, I want to ask one more question and then I want to get Dr. Seneff's uh, opinion about all of this, but um, like are all, I guess what I'm interested in understanding is it seems like viruses become pathogenic. They become disease causing only when your immune system, one, when your immune system can't handle it, when the terrain is not strong enough to, to keep these things either dormant or if they're expressing to control any inflammation or infection that's being caused. But um, another question that I have is what is there then a, a positive relationship that we have with this virome? Like, is it more of a symbiotic relationship? Should we even be using this? Because I think everybody has this real martial concept about a diseases. <laughs> These germs get into your system and then they're invaders and they're attacking you. Is there a positive function that these things, that viruses have inside of our bodies that only only when the terrain is or we've also talked a little bit or in in the information you you sent to me a lot of times the viruses will remain dormant and do nothing so are there some viruses that are helpful some viruses that are pathogenic and are all viruses they remain dormant until called upon or until the terrain changes and they can activate um yeah, I, I think I never use all or only because that's not good scientific. Um, uh, sure. There's always an exception to a rule. Right. Um, but, but essentially, yes, that virome um, is um, um, important evolutionary in the species and in maintaining health in the species. Because um, that's why I went in so in-depth on the DNA methylation because that's a very quick signal something's wrong. It's not the presence of the virus, uh -huh. the expression. So you don't wanna say this virus is pathogenic. Well, a virus becomes pathogenic when it's, when it's um, exposed to the host in a way that, that subverts the immune system. So when we're not exposed by air, by breathing a virus, but rather we're injecting. So, and it's not only the presence, but the sheer volume of what we've been exposed to. And that's why the infection by injection is, is literally driving these diseases because there's so much in those needles and that's what we've realized. And we're getting so many of those needles over the years that it, it's amazing that our immune systems, you know, don't fall apart with all we've been exposed to. So yes, the virome, as we know, um, with the microbiome, microbial um, biome, the, the microbiome and mm -hmm. the virome are very important. We would not have a placenta without a retrovirus expression. 
But and, and that retrovirus is a gamma retrovirus known as HERV W in an ancient form. And, and that retrovirus is, is that retrovirus, that HERV W is is silenced, you know, almost essentially all the time. And when it's activated, it becomes pathogenic and is associated with multiple sclerosis, ovarian cancers, and other things because of the tissue. So the viral load is really important. How much sure. of, the, of the virus is there and then how much of the tissue that the virus replicates in. Because again, they have gates, they have gatekeepers, they have receptors, locks and keys. They can't get into every cell only certain cells. And that's why it's really important not to do these gain of function studies, which is to teach them to go into cells that God didn't intend them to go. <laughs> right. And when you inject the provirus, you do not need an infectious transmissible virus. And this was the, oh my God, in our story, that, that by injecting these proviruses, we had prevented our immune system from silencing them, beating them up with all these pathways that are in all those slides I like to show. Um, and, and, and those pathways and those human cells. And when you culture them in cells, um, that's what some of these papers says, oh, the virus is SARS-CoV-2, the one that, um, that Stephanie said, I think I highlighted, you know, it says, oh, in the cells, in the, in the, in vitro, in the laboratory, the virus replicates like mad in these cells. And we assume that those tissue reservoirs, um, are the same as the human being. Well, they're not. The cell lines are deficient in their type one interferons in, in some of the others. I looked at the Vero monkey kidney cells cannot stop the replication before it ever becomes a virion, before it ever becomes a particle. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a big problem because this is how we've crippled animal viruses are good. Your endogenous virome is not my endogenous virome. A cow's is not a human's is not. They're very important for the species, but the evolution within a species not without us from without from and and so that's why when they're injected and they are as part of every live viral vaccine including the flu shots when they're injected they're dysregulating everything mm -hmm. so it, you know um it when that SARS-CoV-2 comes along by a natural route, you can't respond. And you're more likely to get an infection because your type one interferons are crippled and you don't, you'll make a particle instead of cutting it at the level of the nucleic acid before it ever becomes a particle budding out of your cell, as you see in the picture with those spikes, those are proteins. Those aren't nucleic acids. So we're measuring the a tenth of the blueprint in that PCR. That's why this is not a diagnostic test. That's not an infectious virus. So yes, clearly people have been injected, but the people wearing the masks are testing positive. Why? They're waking up their genome because they're creating hypoxia and crippling their mitochondria and their energy and their metabolic processes. Hypoxia. Yeah, and it's it's at the heart of, of diseases associated with viruses, including cancers. All right. I'd like to get into that just a little bit later, but I want to hear Dr. Seneff's, uh, her thoughts on all this that we've been talking about in terms of the epigenetics and the virome and the, and the biome and this, this more or less the symbiotic relationship that can occur and, and that we all have these. You know, I'm just trying to kind of 
bust the myth that so many people have that germs are bad, you, you know, <laughs> and that we ju they just need to be eradicated. Um, and so, you know, what are your thoughts, Dr. Seneff? And, and uh, what do you, how do you feel about, you know, what is the human body's relationship with, with these, uh, with these, with all this microbiology? Kind of hard to know where to start because there's just so much stuff. But yeah, yeah, sure. I certainly have a different take. I, I really enjoy listening to Judy. She's, I just uh, it's a lot to absorb, mm -hmm. and it is a kind of different uh, viewpoint. But there's a lot of overlap, I think, in the way I think, in the way, in what she's saying. Um, so I mean, exactly. You know, one big question is where do viruses come from? Like, are they sort of emergent out of our own system? And in fact, are they emergent out of all the organisms, different systems, and then just spread around through the air? I mean, there's a really big question of where they come from. What is their origin? Are they independent external species or are they just sort of creations of, of the imagination of all the, of the all the organisms that are in an environment where they're responding to, in many cases, toxic chemicals, nutritional deficiencies? And then, you know, I really enjoyed the book um, Sally Fallon uh, wrote recently, The, the uh, Contagion Myth. Mm -hmm. And she's taking a radical view that the coronavirus is not real, that it doesn't exist, and that it's really just an exosome. She uses this you know, term exosome as saying viruses and exosomes are the same thing. And that's very intriguing. Now, I don't believe that. I believe I would say that a virus is an exosome on steroids is the way I would describe it. And I think that exosomes are, in fact, particles that are released from the cells, especially from cells under stress. And they look a lot like viruses. They have RNA in them. They have protein in them. They have a, a, a coat, um, an envelope, a lipid envelope. So they basically look like viruses. But I think the distinction between an exosome and a virus is really that the, the material, the, the, the RNA material inside an RNA virus is able to, um, to produce a, a set of proteins that allows the virus to take advantage of the host um, resources to reproduce itself. So... Uh, an exosome, I believe, is is a particle that can't reproduce, whereas a virus is a particle that can. And that makes a huge, huge difference because if it can reproduce, it's like a cancer cell, right? It can, it can blow up, you know, it can just become huge numbers of these viruses if, in fact, the terrain is a, is a suitable for it to do that. But the, the, and the virus needs the cell, the nucleus, the cell nucleus. Oh, it needs a huge reproduce. amount of material. The, the cell supports the virus. It helps mm. it to, the cell provides a lot of... Um, yeah, this helps help the virus to reproduce itself. Yeah, if I may, Stephanie just said that perfectly, and um, and so the 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 host cell is it's 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 part of the virus. So how is an exosome different? And and it really is important because in cancer, in in AIDS, in in diseases of retroviral infection in some of these infections, the patients have a huge amount of exosomes. So not what, surprised. And, and so what exosomes are and what viruses are is they extrude from the cell, they bud out, they take the cholesterol, they take the little the phosphatidylcholine, and then they insert their own proteins into that. In in and that's a viral. And that's a, it's a circular particle. And as Stephanie said, they reproduce themselves and they're a little virus factory. Mm -hmm. Now, um, um, in, in the case of an exosome, there aren't viral particle. There aren't foreign pieces. It, they bud from the cell as well. And as, as she, as she said, they package RNA and they're used between cells to communicate because RNA outside the cell 
RNA in the cytoplasm, RNA in the outside the nucleus of a cell is a danger signal. That's that long diatribe I just tried to explain what a danger signal, but it was listed in, in, they're called DAMs, danger associated molecular patterns. But the cell needs to communicate. The immune cell needs to say, hey, look at this guy. It's a bad guy. And so you don't want it outside the cells turning on the flame because the flame's going to do a lot of damage to the tissue. You want simply for the cell to tell the other cell, the macrophage or monocyte or the dendritic cell to talk to the T cell or the B cell. The, you know, all these cells talk to each other through exosomes. And, and, and so viruses take, you know, and you're going to see a lot of similarity because, and that's what, one of the things as we've always characterized and discovered new families of viruses, you don't simply show an electron micrograph with a virus particle or an exosome in it. You have to show it budding. You have to show it budding out of the cell because then you know it's alive and real. It just didn't fall out of other cells in another part of the body exploding. So RNA that's not in an exosome communicating. So what we know in HIV AIDS in these diseases and in, in SARS-CoV-2 is that there, where the exosomes are being made, there are a ton of exosomes being made in these patients. And that's not a coronavirus. Um, and, and this is why it was important to say the, the adult T-cell leukemic cell was not the cell that was infected, but it was the cell that was getting hit. And this was the same thing that getting killed, blowing up, not able to function. And it's the same thing in HIV. It wasn't the T-cells. They were all dying in medicine called it bystander effect. And only one in 10,000 were, um, were infected. And that, it, it, that was 1986 and seven when I started my PhD thesis because I said, oh, that's a really scientific term, a bystander effect. How yeah. are the cells dying if they're not infected? And I basically said, there's another shooter. There's a Trojan horse. There's a reservoir of some other virus that is crippling the immune system, the natural killer cells, the cells that gobble up, you know, the, 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 the RNA cell pathways. We have like five different type one interferon pathways and maybe a dozen more, but only five I understand um, that, right. um, that, that contribute to degrading extracellular RNA. And that's, again, why this, um, why this mRNA vaccine expressed by an adenoviral vector is going to kill a lot of people because they simply don't have the immune capacity to degrade the RNA. That's why MMR hurts little black boys. It's three RNA viruses. And until they're three years old, blacks have, um, and 13% of our population can't degrade those fast enough. So they cause injury by turning on the mm-hmm. fire. So that's exactly, um, I'll get back to exosomes or let Stephanie get back to, but that, yeah. that exactly right thing. No, exosomes are not viruses and viruses are viruses. And yes, they can cause disease and, and, and they are associated by dysregulating other parts. And it's the communication. It's a paper I've used since it came out in 2009, war and peace among the microbes. The microbiome talks to the virome, they all metabolize things, and they control the expression of genes. And when you change that, you're in trouble.
Well, and so this, I guess, and just before you continue on, uh, Stephanie, so the virums and the exosomes, actually, the viruses and exosomes serve this function of essentially genetic communication between different cells in the body. It's and they have genetic, they, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and then the only time it becomes an issue is when the virus replication is basically allowed to get out of control. Right. For that's some right. reason, Absolutely. that's when you're going to have disease symptoms. And that's and, right. And so, okay. what I think is, when someone is healthy and their COVID nineteen is out there, the SARS CoV two is out there. They breathe it in. They get some infected. The macrophages just boom. The virus is gone. They're mm-hmm. like, okay, that's done. We're we're happy, and they're fine. They might not even produce antibodies. They're like, that's just no big deal. I'll just get rid of it. If their immune cells are not healthy, they breathe in the virus. The, the virus infects their their lung tissues. And the virus multiplies like crazy because the immune cells are incapacitated. They can't clear the virus. So the virus starts flourishing inside all these cells and gets released with all these little packets of envelopes of, of the lipid the lipid envelope that it picked up from the cell that it infected. So these viruses are little particles with these fatty acids around them. And then those virus particles trigger a, a, a whole, you know, it, reaction, which is this inflammatory response that causes all these cytokines and all this damage, you know, all this, all the stuff with the reactive Mm -hmm. oxygen species and um, lots of bad things happening. But that's actually, in my opinion, uh, orchestrating a whole complex process with a goal. And the goal is to fix the the macrophages. So this is where it gets really, really interesting. This is what I've only figured out recently, and I'm very excited about it. And I just want to clarify, the macrophages are the parts of the immune system that literally eat the, yeah, big, the dead big, particles or the viruses or the other yeah. things that are, are unhealthy. Eater. They, can, they can chow down on the viruses and, and wipe them out. They basically mm-hmm. digest them and actually consume them as a source of nutrition. So, Correct. And that's what I mentioned. Every single tissue in the body has a resident. So in your lung, right. it's the alveolar macrophage that allows you to breathe. So in diseases of hypoxia, COPD literally means hypercapnia, too much carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. in the lung, in the blood, in the lungs. Mm -hmm. So your macrophages can't work. They can't do their gobble up. I call them Pac-Man. They can't do that job. That's why the most susceptible, and that allows viruses to go unchecked in their replication. So they make huge reservoirs in my lungs, in David's lungs. My husband, um, and and um, and this is why you never wear a mask. You know what are you thinking? <laughs> right, it's like right. It's the hypoxia triggers a whole other cascade. Which, yeah. but it's what's really really interesting to me, and and this is something I've only learned. Really, I've learned a lot of new stuff recently. I keep on branching out and having to read more papers, you know, because it's some, some part of biology so much that I didn't know about before. It's so <laughs> incredible. I know it's just amazing. And um, and Judy mentioned those. Um, stem cells that are resident in the, in the lungs, you know, the, the mesenchymal stem cells, and they play an important role. So when you have this virus comes in and the macrophages can't clear it, and that's by the way, because their immune system, those cells are incapacitated by glyphosate and also by many other toxic chemicals. But I believe that glyphosate is a real train wreck for the immune, innate immunity. It weakens innate immunity. So do the flu vaccines. You get a flu vaccine every year. Every time you get a flu vaccine, your innate immunity goes down a notch. Can so, I? I want to ask you a question before we move too 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 far away from from this topic about the potential positives. Like as you were you were using COVID as a 
example and saying, well, you breathe in some COVID, the macrophages, if they're healthy, are going to eliminate the COVID and then you're not going to get sick. But is it, it, is it possible? And we discussed this a little bit in our, in our previous conversation, but like COVID has this positive role to play in terms of communication. Like we don't, I mean, just because everybody has this eradication theory and that's what I keep knocking on the door here. I want to try to understand if the science can, can back me up on this theory. Um, that it's not about eradicating the virus. Like, should we even be afraid of COVID? We get a little bit of COVID. We have plenty, a healthy immune system. The COVID is serving this function of communicating this genetic information to us. It never expresses as a disease and we have nothing to fear. It's no problem. We, it's great. Congratulations. You got the information COVID is in the world to give to your body. And now you've, you're upgraded genetically. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's okay. correct. And if you will, say SARS-CoV-2, because COVID the right. disease is the yeah, disease. SARS-CoV-2, yeah. And so once you've got the disease, it's a very different thing. Right. So this is, okay. this is why we say HIV and not AIDS, because right. they don't have AIDS. So when then right. this right. is why we say, hey, this is the political, this is the twisting of the words. Sure. So, you know, coronaviruses there are huge families of them so yes this one could have been made in lab who cares the fact of the matter is your immune system can see it if exposed in a natural way as stephanie just said and as the data prove 99.8 percent of the people who have functional immune systems will never develop covid from a sars cov 2 infection yeah yeah, which you never hear anybody talking about in the mainstream media. I mean, this is what's the most frustrating thing is like, hey, you don't have to be afraid of this virus right. if you just keep if your immune healthy. system healthy. Absolutely, like, that's true. Yeah. That should be the information that's just been driving driven home into everyone. Instead, they're they're scared and scared into wearing masks and social distancing and all the rest of this stuff. So, Well, I would like to continue to talk about this whole issue of what actually happens when you have a weak immune system. Right. Mm-hmm. The virus comes in, the virus, you know, your cells take it up, they make more, they spill it out. And every one of those viruses has this lipid coat around it, you know, and the virus triggers this uh, adaptive immune response with all this cytokine storm and all that stuff. But that is actually a whole process that geared towards healing. It's geared towards fixing the macrophages. This is what I believe. The viruses actually, um, they do, a, a, they cause a number of things to happen. They change the behavior of the cells, you know, and, and there's a fascinating paper that I, I really enjoyed about um, bradykinin, uh, upregulation of bradykinin by the virus which causes um, amazing stuff to happen. And, and, and there's, uh, you know, this whole cascade that ends up with uh, overproduction of high hyaluronic acid in the alveoli of the lungs. The lungs become filled up with gelled water, hydrogel, that's induced by this hyaluronic acid. And at the same time, there's upregulation of these cytokines that produces inflammation, which causes those lipid membranes of those viruses. Those are, came from the lipid membranes of the cells, but each virus has a little packet envelope of, of, of fatty acids around it. And there's an enzyme called lipoxygenase that is absolutely fascinating. Lipoxygenase modifies those fatty acids by extracting hydrogen from them, combining it with oxygen to make water. And that water that it makes is extremely deuterium depleted. This is where the deuterium angle gets in and it's so fascinating because mm. the hyaluronic acid traps deuterium in the gel and then the lipoxygenase makes beautiful water that has essentially no deuterium. And what you're creating inside the 
lung interstitial area, which is where all those macrophages are gathering. The macrophages are all swarming in from everywhere. They all want to come in there and drink that sweet nectar. They want to get a hold of that deuterium depleted water so they can fix their mitochondria. So in other words, the virus is orchestrating this incredibly complicated response, which ends up flooding the lungs, make you feel like you're drowning. So it's bad, right? And you can't get um, any oxygen. You know, your oxygen supply is way, way down. You get hypoxia. That causes a whole other cascade. If, in fact, your macrophages are so sick that despite all these efforts, the virus is doing everything it can to equip the macrophages to clear the virus. The virus is saying, kill me, kill me, kill me. You know, mm, I'm going to help you yeah. out here so you can kill me. And the macrophages say, sorry, I'm so sick. These mac- my, my mitochondria are so shocked. To, to hell by glyphosate that I can't get to the point where I can fix them. Right. Despite all your best efforts, I can't fix them. I can't clear you. Go ahead. And then, of course, you get tremendous hypoxia. And then you get another whole response in the blood because of the hypoxia. You get this whole response that involves heme oxygenase, you know, and, and so you, you, uh, you upregulate heme oxygenase. You're breaking down heme. You're releasing iron. And um, that's a whole other cascade that's intended for a second level of, of fixing, it's sort of a desperate second attempt to rescue things. What you've got now is you've got sepsis. I mean, if, if the glyphosate has wrecked your immune system so badly that these repair mechanisms are broken down by glyphosate, even glyphosate disrupts the whole process that is trying to do the repair as well as having disrupted your macrophages to begin with. And so the people who have, who are completely burdened with glyphosate simply can't get through this process of cleansing that the virus is trying to, orchestrate mm-hmm. to fix the macrophages so that they can clear the virus and so that they will be stronger in the future. Make the immune system stronger in, as a final consequence once you recover, if you do. And at the same time as that we have all this glyphosate in our bodies, our immune system is also getting hammered by the retroviruses and the other chemicals in the vaccines, as Judy points out. So absolutely, we've got a situation where we've all got you know, potentially dozens of retroviruses, as well as heavy metal toxicity from vaccines. And we're all full of glyphosate from getting sprayed on all the GMO food. <laughs> and so our immune systems are are so weak that when a, a COVID or a SARS-CoV-2 expresses in our environment, uh, even if it may have this benign function of helping to, to communicate this genetic, new genetic information, um, potentially how to help to help us detoxify or strengthen our immune system, but it starts to replicate, but the immune system's not strong enough to up, upload basically the new information. And so the virus replicates uh, out of control and that's what causes the disease symptom. Right. Yeah, that's Fa- fascinating. That's what drives the t- terrain destruction. It's just right. the fire, the fire trucks keep going to the fire and they can't put it out because more and more. So, it, you know, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. One of those. <laughs> you know. So I I want to move on then to this idea of um, of dormant viruses. Is it are viruses just these viruses? Because a lot of if your immune system's healthy, then the virus doesn't express pathologically. Is it is it while it's dormant? Is it um, is it um, performing this positive task? Is it communicating uh, new genetic information to our bodies or it's literally just sort of lying in wait? It's not expressing. Literally with that methylation, it's like a rope. You know how when you look at an electron micrograph, you see knots on a string, all uh-huh. of the strings are expressed. So as I mentioned, a dormant ma- um, virus is not okay. a 
when they are. But I, it, I would like to actually give an example of a virus that I, not a virus, it's actually a bacterium. Mm-hmm. Uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis. Very, very interesting. Uh, and I've been looking at it with respect to Africa and COVID-19. And it's quite remarkable if you look at a map of Africa, color-coded for where they have higher uh, infection, higher deaths from tuberculosis, and where they have higher deaths from COVID-19, and they're actually mirror images of each other. The places that have high infection rate with with tuberculosis have low uh, deaths from COVID-19 and vice versa. It's quite striking. The two maps are basically mirror images of each other. And which is really, really fascinating to me. And so in Africa, 80% of the population tests positive for infection with this tuberculosis bacterium, 80%. In the U.S., it's only 5 or 10%. So much, much greater penetration. Interesting. In the U.S., it, it's 5 or 10% in AIDS patients, in the, in the retroviral infected. And all the way back in the 80s, this was what Chai Xing Lo um, was doing. He was saying mycoplasma causes AIDS. And you see, we play that cause game, and really, it's the it's the communication that is disrupted between um, the the immune system and the various invading organisms. But the tuberculosis bacterium produces a very very interesting uh, product, which is menaquinone sulfate. And I, they, this is unique. It's a sulfated version of menaquinone, which is vitamin K two, vitamin K two sulfate. This this bacterium produces that. So I suspect that. In a situation where, with glyphosate, for example, and of course other chemicals as well, um, that can be a very, very useful thing for the host. In other words, it can be helping to compensate for deficiencies in the host that are a consequence of their exposures to toxic chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so this this bacterium could just be latent, you know, hanging out in your lungs, producing this menaquinone sulfate, which is a terrific su- supplement for you to get you the vitamin K2 and also to get you the sulfate. Because I've identified sulfate deficiency as being a critical aspect of glyphosate toxicity and uh, the metaquinone k2 you know that's a that's a quinone and those those are very very important for the mitochondria those are uh, very keep the mitochondria healthy we we made a lot of drugs out of the quinones and they and they they do help absolutely mm-hmm. that's right hydroxy hydroxychloroquine i think is a quinone right so um so that's really interesting to me so i think that those people who are infected with the tuberculosis bacterium and aren't showing any symptoms, they're not showing symptoms because they're healthy. They've got healthy diet, they've got nutrition, they, they don't have toxic exposures, you know, they're fine. It's not hurting them at all. And in fact, it's helping them. It's only when they get so sick that the, this, the bacterium then is, has a chance to grow because the immune cells can't clear it. They mm-hmm. can't keep it in, in check. Uh, and that's an indicator that they're in big trouble and then they'll get killed off by it. So it's in a way... These infections, I think they, they sort of prune away the people who are most, who, are, who would be in, you know, have the most difficult time staying healthy because of all their other problems that they have. When you have these nutritional deficiencies and these toxic exposures, you know, you're going to be a real burden on the healthcare system because you're just going to be sick all the time with all these autoimmune diseases and whatnot. And so maybe nature's way is just to let one of these infections take over and, uh, kill you off because you were, you're really too sick to maintain a healthy existence over the long period. When the dormant viruses and bacteria, they're expressed though, as you explained before, they're actually trying to put the system back in balance, right? I mean, this is an initial attempt to solve the problem, 
Right, exactly. That's what I think. Only when the problem is too dire does the infection get out of control. Right. And in fact, the solution gets out of control. And that's what's happening, I think, in the case of SARS-CoV-2 with the uh-huh. uh, heme oxygenase. Really, really fascinating. Uh, I found multiple papers that talk about heme oxygenase. It's supposed to be um, actually a good thing. When you, you get this runaway inflammation in the blood and then you, and then you uh, upregulate this heme oxygenase, and it actually tames the inflammation and solves the problem over time. It does, you know, it breaks down heme, makes this bilirubin. Bilirubin is a really good antioxidant. It's sort of basically... And it releases carbon monoxide, which has all the signaling. All this stuff happens, but it ends up resolving the inflammation. The hemoxygenase does. However, if the hemoxygenase is is defective, if it has a mutation where there's a glycine that is at the place where it binds heme, if that glycine is changed into something else mm-hmm. by a genetic mutation, that hemoxygenase is a is a rogue version of itself. It does the exact opposite of what it would normally do, and it releases this very highly toxic Fe plus four feral iron. Now, that can't be controlled by by the ferritin. So it's basically this feral line is just going to put the put fire, you know, add add fuel to the fire okay. of the inflammation, make it worse rather than making it better. And the um, and the heme is not doesn't get broken down, so you don't get the antioxidant benefit of the bilirubin that would have been produced if the heme oxygenase had worked. And the whole signaling system breaks down, and uh, and so you actually things spiral downward with a positive feedback loop. Right. And then, of course, glyphosate substitutes for glycine, I believe. So it gets in there and makes a pseudo genetic mutation by ch- substituting for that glycine residue that's so critical in hemoxygenase. So even as you're trying to get this upgrade, if there's glyphosate in the mix, then the upgrade doesn't work and the infection just gets worse. Exactly. Okay. And in glutathione, glycine is the third amino acid. I know. Glyphosate substitutes then, you know, as the RNA viruses are cytosol, and that's where glutathione needs to work. So it's a, it's a um, you know, synergistic and not mm-hmm. additive effect. When the virus keeps going out of control, it keeps going, and in the, in the, in the macrophages and the rest of the immune system simply you know, become exhausted. Right, right. Glyphosate disrupts glutathione in many ways. And another way that I only learned about recently, I found a paper from 1982 um, that showed, it talks specifically about a single enzyme that glyphosate was shown to suppress in that study. And that enzyme actually restores NADPH. And NADPH is essential to bring (laughs) glutathione back to its reduced form. Interesting. But in order to make it work. So so that this enzyme that's producing the NADPH is broken by glyphosate. And then, the glyph- and then the glutathione itself could have glyphosate in it. And the combination of those two things is just total wreck for glutathione. And glutathione oh. is absolutely essential for uh, maintaining antioxidant defenses in the mitochondria in particular. And this is a mitochondrial enzyme that produces this NADPH that gets broken by glyphosate. So that's a whole big reason why uh, one of the big reasons why glyphosate would disrupt the mitochondria, and I think it's the mitochondria being broken that's causing the immune cells to to not be able to function correctly. Right. Ultimately, it seems like all roads lead back to the mitochondria, actually. This is the impression that I'm getting after these months of talking with you guys and others, um, that if your your mitochondria is producing, is basically the energy producer of your cell. And if it's sick or if it's not producing energy efficiently, well, then nothing else is going to work. Your immune system isn't going to be able to function because it's not going to have enough energy to function. And then, you know, these other things are going to start getting out of control. And that's really where where the root of the root of disease is found in the in the mitochondrial health so that's that's just a yeah, fascinating that's 
It is. And in fact, there's another thing I only learned recently, which is super fascinating. The platelets uh, contain mitochondria. Each, hmm. each platelet contains platelets. They're little tiny guys. They're hard, not even really cells. They don't have any nucleus. Yeah, they're, they're metacaryous, megakaryocytes that literally. <laughs> right, right. Those cells put out buds. They're almost like little exosomes in a way, the platelets. And they contain, uh, each one contains like seven mitochondria. Huh. And when the platelets. And has like 40 fold more opportunity to, um, you know, destroy, you know, to enhance immune function. It look, it's like a super cytokine storm. Yeah, well, the platelets, though, when they get excited because of reacting to all the stuff, they release their mitochondria. And then with this macropinocytosis, the macrophages can chew them up. So the mac the ma it has been shown that platelets and mesenchymal stem cells release mitochondria out into the general circulation. And the macrophages use this macropinocytosis to sweep them up. So they're actually taking in on top of getting this deuterium depleted water that's been generated through these processes. They're also getting mitochondria, working mitochondria inside that water that they're bringing back into their, their cell and reinforcing their mitochondria with these new ones that are being supplied by all these other um, cells and platelets and whatnot. So it's quite fascinating to me. I think when you have these incredibly um, intense reactions that such as this whole process that goes on in the lungs, mm -hmm. um, there's a whole attempt there to everything's focused on getting mitochondria working again in the macrophages, whether you give them that deuterium depleted water to fix the, because the mitochondria get really sick when there's too much deuterium in their water. And uh, that's why that's really sure. important to be able to do that. Yeah. You, then, you talk um, about it like sugar in the gas tank, right? Yes, exactly. It's yeah. so interesting. And so giving them that healthy water and giving them healthy mitochondria that are being supplied by other other things in their environment, the platelets and the, and the mesenchymal stem cells are busy providing these mitochondria, whole mitochondria for these macrophages to just take up and use. It's really, really fascinating. Well, and we, we just touched on this, but I want to kind of move the conversation into the, the function of iron. Um, we, because Judy, you shared this paper with us and I've, and I, I've read this in other areas. And we also now we're seeing what's going on with the blood and the iron in the blood with COVID as well. So I think it all ties in, but you talk about how a lot of times we have these dormant viruses in our body because our immune system is fine. The terrain is healthy. The viruses remain dormant. They're they're not activated, but it's with the iron when the iron um, is not regulated properly. And so, of course, just to clarify too, the iron is responsible for oxygenating the blood. Um, so that's when we talk about hypoxia. That's not getting enough iron and having too much, or excuse me, not getting enough oxygen and having too much carbon dioxide in the blood. Um, which happens when you wear a mask. <laughs> so it's kind of, I'm trying to, you know, connect the dots here. Um, so can we talk a little bit, um, maybe Judy, about the, the function of iron and how iron dysregulation then causes this cascade and allows these viruses to express themselves? I think I'd, I'd rather let Stephanie start there because sure. I only think of iron from, from the the larger biological level. And what I know is when ferritin is in the blood, which Stephanie just talked about that relationship. So I think she's probably closer to up on it than I am right now. But okay. when ferritin is over 3000 in the blood, you've got the same cytokine storm as SARS-CoV-2 infection would cause. So it looks like you're infected and you're not, but you're probably waking up other microbes But in, in further dysregulating. And interestingly, up the energy of the 5G 
is enough to separate hemoglobin um, from iron. The iron right. goes into the blood in the form of ferritin, and and when you're and and, and we see in people with cancers or and in the exact susceptible population of of COVID nineteen, they already have like. 2,500. So so they're just waiting for a tickle in order to explode and the inflammation, the flame just drives. So that's pretty much all I know about iron in the blood. (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, Stephanie, you want to take it away, but it's it's a great point about the 5G though, because just like wearing the masks, the 5G can also cause this uh, a hypoxic reaction, which does the same, which starts the same cascade that results in the same symptoms that we're seeing with COVID. So it's all it all kind of comes together. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, of course, I've, I've looked at iron and glyphosate because that's a very interesting story there. And uh, mm-hmm. glyphosate is a metal chelator and it binds iron. Iron is one of the plus two um, metals that it binds. And um, so it's, it's acting to disrupt the normal process by which the body manages iron. Iron is really tricky because it's highly reactive. And if you've got superoxide going on, you know, you've got this inflammatory situation where you're releasing superoxide and making hydrogen peroxide. Iron just really, really um, makes a wreck out of things with that combination. It makes it, it makes those molecules much more toxic if there's free iron. So the ferritin going up is actually a way to protect from free iron. Iron goes into the ferritin and gets stored there as if it was too. Glyphosate, I think, forces the iron to not be plus two. As I said, for example, with the heme oxygenase, so when you, uh, so your body releases um, the heme oxygenase, which, which breaks down heme and releases free iron. Normally, that free iron would be Fe plus two, which would go into the ferritin and be happy. It would just be stored there because if you're getting ready to, because you're going to need that iron, you're, you're sequestering it to have it ready for your healing process. But because of the disruption of heme oxygenase with glyphosate, you end up releasing Fe plus four feral iron, which is incredibly toxic, doesn't go into the ferritin, hangs out loose in the blood and causes destruction, absolute destruction of the, of the blood vessels. And that's when you get into the situation of uh, sepsis and you know massive coagulation of the blood, blood clots mm-hmm. and multiple organ failure, all that stuff okay. uh, can be a consequence of, the, um, of this feral iron reacting with these reactive oxygen species. And then you don't have the antioxidant capacity of the bilirubin that you would have had if the heme oxygenase had been able to break down the heme because the heme oxygenase turns heme into bilirubin and then into bilirubin. And would bilirubin you, is a fantastic antioxidant, just like glutathione. Would you say so, that this is what we're seeing uh, with the coagulation that's happening with the SARS-CoV-2 infections? That's what I think, yes. Okay. Yeah, but it's probably not the infections, but everything else that is mimicking the infections by crippling all that we've just talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's interesting in susceptible populations. And so I'll ask Stephanie about this because I've been looking at it a lot in our cases in um, vaccine court, because there's always a susceptible population. So hemochromatosis in people of Irish and Scottish defense. Um, so what is hemochromatosis? I mean, I, I don't appreciate it at the genetic level and I won't put you on the spot but we <laughs> for our next 
but but we just know that I just know that the Irish, you know, and and people with red hair and things like that have have hemochromatosis, just as the blacks and the um, Mexicans, people of color who live near the equator, um, um, develop um, you know different uh, control of their vitamin D receptors and things like that. So it's that's a reason, at least one reason why, and they develop different um, um, RNA cell pathways to degrade different pathogens, as I mentioned in the beginning of, of different RNA uh, viruses. They don't do it as well until they're mature in their degradation. But I just know in the cases where we see flu vaccines um, literally um, causing um, neurological diseases, myalgic encephalomyelitis and others, um, you can, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome, you can really see um, people with a susceptibility to hemochromatosis um, being those who are most likely to be injured by those components. Mm, that's interesting. The, uh, the myelin story is another one that I've just recently started to get a handle on because that's also very, very fascinating to me. And I think you've probably been hearing about some people who recover from COVID-19 and then they develop neurological symptoms, um, long-term, you know, chronic uh, problems uh, with um, one of the things they can develop is a sort of a immune attack on the myelin sheath, on the nerve fibers. And so that's basically like multiple sclerosis. Right. And um, what I've uh, just discovered recently, I've discovered several papers, absolutely fascinating, showing that myelin actually has functional um, ability to synthesize ATP using the ATPase enzyme that is normally in mitochondria but they're doing this without mitochondria. So they have the enzyme that makes the ATP and they have the, and they set up a situation where they have the, a, a, a membrane where you can pump protons across because that's what you need to make ATP work. The myelin actually has those, that capacity, um, lots of it because the, the neurons actually need a ton of, uh, of ATP to do their work and, and, and to actually transmit the signal. They need to produce the ATP to be able to transmit the signal. And so when your body is raiding uh, the, the um, myelin, I suspect what's happening is the macrophages are stealing that ATPase from the, from the myelin to help out their mitochondria. So again, I think it really, when you start to look at all these inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, I, and anything that involves uh, edema, swelling. I suspect that in all those cases, I'm starting to develop a kind of a universal theory <laughs> of, mm. of, of mitochondrial recovery for the macrophages through, through some kind of chronic disease, inf chronic inflammatory disease. And Stephanie, anything to add? Or you guys should also, I know you're writing a book. Is the book... Yes. When's the book coming out? And Hopefully early next year. Um, okay. The main title is the, just The Glyphosate Effect. Great. So watch Sounds for that. Good. And yeah. what's the website again? Uh, my website? Um, yeah. I, I have a new one that's stephaniesenef.net, which is a lot easier to remember than the one at MIT. I have one Great. at MIT that has all kinds of material on it. And the new one, um, stephaniesenef.net, is a starting point. You can get to the other one from there. So... Sounds good. It's definitely packed with information. And and Judy, your your new book's coming out shortly as well, huh? Yeah, next year up, Ending Plague, A Scholar's Obligation in an Age of Corruption, and that'll feature Frank Rossetti. So after 
40 years, he's finally going to talk because, you know, this right. is what we're talking about is a scholar's obligation, that that our, our thoughts aren't censored, that we can approach our work unbiased from any kind of ownership by government or pharmaceutical company or that that an inconvenient truth will will um, shut down literally an industry and, and and we'll cover that up as we did with HIV, um, Zika, Ebola, um, on and on through autism and, um, and, and AIDS. So this is this is the plague of corruption that has to end. Um, um, and that's what an ending plague will do. So when we can teach people, um, I, I think it's very positive. And it's going to have a lot of people like um, uh, different scientists from different viewpoints um, to talk about solutions because really we're we're at solutions right i don't care where you make the virus because you're going to make a hundred behind that and and so if we can teach everybody how to keep themselves well that's my goal mm-hmm. sounds like a plan sure. and yeah. people can people can keep track of your stuff at plaguethebook.com is that the go-to that's a go-to yeah all right sounds good well, I'll just let people know that you can find out more about The Shift with Doug McKinty on YouTube and Facebook, and I am uh, on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. So if you want to find out more about this program, and I've got a lot of free content up on the site, you can check out everything else I've done there. And I want to thank these two doctors for coming on the show with me. Thank you so much. What a great conversation. I love uh I just uh, have really enjoyed getting to know both of you over the last couple of months and doing these interviews with you and letting the two of you have this conversation together. It's been really challenging for me. I've had to up my game in terms of understanding the science, (laughs) but I've learned a lot. And I'm just excited to see where this goes in the future because the work you're doing is is really exciting. And I think that there's a, a lot of benefit for a lot of people here. So keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Sure. Yes, thank you. Take care. And there you go, ladies and gentlemen. That was my conversation with doctors Judy Mikovits and Stephanie Seneff. I uh, have had the great pleasure of speaking with those two now probably four or five times each. Uh, um, this is uh, I've had them on individually on the shift, and I've spoken with uh, each one of them both separately and together on uh, the Roundtable Discussions podcast that I do. And I hope, I think I'm finally getting the hang of, uh, of reining them in when the science gets too out of control and, and doing these interviews where uh, the average person can really understand what they're talking about. They're so well-educated. And actually, one of the things that impresses me the most about both of these ladies is that uh, the, the level of humility. I mean, I think once you uh, have reached a certain level of education, you really just acquiesce to the universe in terms of there's so much information out there. You maybe have learned a lot, but you, I mean, at least these two people are uh, so open-minded and so it's like continuous education for themselves. You know, they're constantly learning and uh, I appreciate that about both of them. And it was great to have them both on for this conversation because I actually enjoy watching them learn from each other. And uh, I know they both enjoy being able to have conversations with each other as well because they come from different angles and different scientific backgrounds. And uh, so they're learning from each other all the, uh, all the time during this conversation as well, bouncing ideas off of each other. And so uh, I was happy to provide the forum for them to be able to do that. And it was super fun to be able to talk to them and glean some of their knowledge and, uh, and, and grow myself and educate myself as to some of the science that's uh, behind all of this, um, it's just so ever 
evolving human knowledge and to have these two people that are on the cutting edge of that that have basically learned science to the place where they're you know they're on the edge of human knowledge and they've come to a place where they realize you know how much they don't know and i think that's the uh, that's where the humility comes in and it's uh, just so much fun to be able to sit here and moderate a conversation between the two of them and bounce these ideas back and forth and uh and I hope that uh, the information they were giving is, is translatable to, to you and that you uh, were able to take something away from this conversation as well. Because the topic is certainly just extraordinarily interesting in that, like I said in the introduction, the viral theory has really evolved from Louis Pasteur 150 years ago, where it was just that, well, there's probably these microscopic germs that they get in your body, they cause disease. And people have thought this, scientists have thought this for, for hundreds of years, and a lot of the, the vaccine theory is based on this, in fact. But then, lo and behold, when Stephen Lanka discovered the virome in the 1980s, just like when the virome was discovered, suddenly it's like, oh, these germs aren't just bad. You know, the germs aren't causing the disease. In fact, as we've learned, the human Byram, the bacteria in our guts, work symbiotically with our genetic makeup. If our genes um, don't encode the information to create a certain substance that we need, then our birome, the bacteria in our bodies, will literally cultivate the types of bacteria that will create that chemical for us. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. And I think they've learned more about the biome now than they do understand about the virome. Like, science just doesn't quite understand what this, all these viromes and exosomes and everything, exactly what they're doing. There's a lot of theories bouncing around, um, and we heard a lot of them in this conversation, including that the virome is, we're getting genetic information from outside the body, that it's uh, then upgrading into our own DNA through uh, methylation, through the retroviral methylation process, and our bodies are, are becoming more capable of dealing with the toxins in our environment because we got these viruses. And if we have a healthy immune system, then there's this constant balance going on with all these viruses that are at work, doing this work, helping us to detoxify and upgrading our genetic makeup so that we're capable of uh, doing it without the viruses in the future. But if our immune system gets deregulated, as we heard in that conversation, that's when the, the fire, the controlled burn, gets out of control and we start to present symptoms. And um, as these ladies would have, have it, the, uh, the symptoms are really just the virus is kind of working overtime to continue this detoxification process and to help to kind of control the burn. Only when that gets out of control uh, do we get into a life or death situation? And the hope is you don't ever get there. So we should be boosting our immune systems. And like I expressed in the interview, it's just frustrating that nobody's teaching us how to do that. You know, <laughs> maybe we should do that. Maybe we should focus on how the immune system works, how we can work with our virome so that things are functioning like they should and so that things don't get dysregulated which is when the symptoms of disease start to occur. Um, and it's great that modern science, since uh, Stephen Lanka discovered the virome in the 80s, is working on understanding how this virome works. And we've got a lot of, a lot of really smart people working on that. Um, and people are understanding it more 
more and more all the time. But uh, really interesting to hear, especially Dr. Seneff, talk about something like COVID, where it has a positive function. It's actually fixing the mitochondria, which, as we discussed also, the energy producers in the cell, when our mitochondria are damaged, that's what leads to disease. When you, uh, you know, can heal the mitochondria, then, um, then we have more energy. We have more energy into those macrophages, which are the ones that, that if uh, there is a viral spread, if there is symptoms of disease starting to occur, the macrophages eat, eat the excess viruses that you don't need um, and keep everything regulated. So if you have enough energy in those mitochondria, then you're a healthy person. Well, you know, where are we hearing this in the mainstream, uh, how to heal our mitochondria? And I think it's going to be in the second hour, but for those of you who are uh, subscribers to The Shift, uh, you're going to catch what uh, Dr. Mikovits had to say about a, a real um, holistic healing regimen that I think is just phenomenal, where, you know, we've been talking a lot about this mitochondrial dysfunction, then it leads to uh, inflammation and chronic disease, and we've got all these people with this chronic inflammation going around. This, by the way, also dysregulates the immune system, trying to fight the inflammation, and so then you're more susceptible to other viruses like coronaviruses uh, or influenza viruses or even uh, these cancer-causing viruses like the retroviruses uh, like XMRV that uh, Dr. Mikovits has helped to isolate back a decade ago. Um, and so you want to have you want to have this strong immune system and the strong mitochondria that can get the job done. And what we're looking at, what Mikovits has outlined, is this combination of three three things that really uh, results in uh, a complete healing protocol for so much of this uh, chronic disease that is an epidemic uh, around the entire nation, around the entire world. Um, the first is the deuterium-depleted water that, like Dr. Seneff, is very interested in this too, and she discussed the process of how uh, important that is for mitochondrial health. So you can, the more of this that you're just ingesting, the less your body has to work to produce it, and so uh, the healthier your mitochondria automatically gets. Then, Mikevitz is talking about using cannabis to reduce the inflammation, as we now know. Uh, we all have an endocannabinoid system, uh, and this endocannabinoid system regulates uptake and outtake from the cells of any kind of chemical processes that you want. And so if you don't have enough cannabinoids in your system, which is a chronic problem in this world where hemp has been illegal for so long, uh, you're going to be prone to inflammation, lo and behold. And if you uh, go and add these cannabinoids into your diet, you reduce the inflammation, and then she discusses this common drug, Asuramin, which uh, it controls the mitokines, which, not like cytokines, but it's a similar thing, um, uh, uh, is a reaction to stress. And so if you get stressed out, you have too many mitokines, this results, uh, you know, if you have weak mitochondria, both of these things are going to result in, in inflammation. And so she attacks all three of these, the deuterium-depleted water, the cannabis, and the suramin as one big package to basically help people to overcome a lot of uh, chronic disease. And another thing that, that Mikevitz said as she has been studying the endocannabinoid system is that she's really uh, come full circle from the isolation of the active ingredient, which is what Western science has been really 
uh, trying to do for decades and decades, 100 years plus, allopathic medicine, just targeting, uh, extracting one ingredient out of a, a natural product and then applying that as a drug that you ingest. Well, uh, many other cultures, traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, any herbal medicine practice, uh, they've always included this um, this symbiosis between multiple different types of, of drugs. And when they combine drugs, it's very important in these traditions to understand what that combination is going to do. I mean, that's the, the irony is in allopathic medicine, they do almost no study of what happens when you combine drugs. Uh, into the system. So you'll have these, you know, two or three or four of these active ingredients at one time. Um, and they're not, they're not having conversations or doing safety studies on what happens when you take both of these different drugs at the same time in traditional uh, medicine practices. Uh, this is of utmost importance. And uh, so she uh, talking in the second hour, Dr. Mikevitz talking about uh, using cannabinoids for health and how important it is to really understand how all of these different, the terpenes and the different cannabinoids are working in concert together to provide that healing result. So um, if you do get a chance and you think about subscribing, you can check out the information that she gives out about that uh, in the second hour. Um, and just to close up, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get a bigger picture here with all the science. Um, we kind of ended up talking about a lot of things, and it's amazing that they're all related. I and mean, what's going on in our bodies, again, the chronic inflammation epidemic that's happening across the United States, the immunodeficiency uh, diseases that are epidemic across the United States, across the world, these are all interrelated, and we discussed uh, all kinds of things. We're talking about COVID, 5G, glyphosate. Uh, the mask wearing and the carbon dioxide deficiencies, the hypoxia causing the iron dysregulation, which then will actually cause uh, these viruses. It weakens the immune system and causes these viruses to present symptomatically. Um, and the vaccines, which also tax the immune system. So you get a vaccine and you may not know it, but maybe one of these cancer causing um, viruses, the XMRV viruses that you got from the last vaccine that you got could get triggered and start causing cancer because you're taxing the immune system with every vaccine that you get by design. That's why they put the adjuvants in there. Um, but I'm starting to get this bigger picture about how all of these different processes and different toxins are all working together inside of our bodies. This whole Western diet, if you will, including glyphosate and vaccines uh, and GMO foods for that matter, and it's just overall seriously taxing our systems so that our immune systems don't function very well. So a coronavirus uh, like the one that we're dealing with now suddenly becomes a much bigger deal than it would be if we were all just practicing, you know, eating well, getting some exercise and learning about the science of uh, the immune system and how to keep your immune system healthy. So your virome functions as it should and doesn't get out of control. And uh, I think one of the biggest things we talked about uh, in this episode was just being disappointed that the mainstream media is not doing that whatsoever. That all it does is frighten you about case numbers uh, and it frightens you uh, about how horrible these diseases are and it gives you no tools to legitimately fight these infections before they ever happen. Um, and so I hope you can take some of this information. Uh, remember, you can check out uh, Judy Mikovitz's work at PlagueTheBook.com. 
You can also find out more about Dr. Stephanie Seneff at stephaniesenef.net. Uh, you can get more information. It's complicated, but it's very interesting, and these, uh, these two ladies definitely know what they're talking about, so I urge you to read more, especially... Um, well, um, Stephanie's book is coming out in the next couple of months on the glyphosate issue, and that'll be uh, a must-read. But uh, Plague and Plague of Corruption by Dr. Mikevitz uh, are um, definitely must-reads if you want to understand some of this science a little bit more clearly what's going on uh, in the bigger picture. So um, go uh, and check them out, and of course you can... Check my show out if you want to hear more at uh, www.theshiftnow.com. That's The Shift with Doug McKinty at theshiftnow.com. I'm also on Facebook uh, and YouTube. And now expanding out to other social media sites to uh, try to combat some of this shadow banning and get some real distribution going. Uh, so if you look up The Shift with Doug McKinty on uh, quite a few other ones. I'm on MeWe and Parler or Parlay, I think it's called. Uh, and float, and I'm expanding to BitChute, so you can find me on all of those. Uh, on Minds, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of research into this whole social media thing to try to try to help uh, distribute this information uh, on uh, other third-party platforms where maybe I can get more people. Uh, more more people are allowed to hear what I have to say, <laughs> so um, you can check me out uh, there and. Uh, if you do, please, uh, and you're listening to this somewhere, wherever you're listening to this, please like and subscribe and think about sharing um, to help distribute this far and wide so that the information from these two incredibly intelligent women can get out there uh, just a little bit farther. I'd appreciate that because I rely on the listenership to help distribute this podcast. So uh, again, you can check me out. If you want to subscribe for the longer episodes, it is at www.theshiftnow.com. And uh, I will have another episode out for you here. I've got quite a bit of work that I'm doing right now, actually, uh, three or four episodes kind of backed up. Uh, so I'll be pumping them out here in the next week. So got a lot of information. Micaiah Freeman uh, from the Freedom Articles. Uh, and I just did a great episode with Foster Gamble yesterday. So I'd like to get that one out as soon as possible as well. So you can look forward to that and be out in the near future. Okay. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Take care, everybody. Have a good one.